A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. reading the brand new Oliver Stone autobiography. Whoa. I know I know he's wow. like a he's a he's a figure with a rep right now and he's had a bad one for the last few years. But I read some reviews of this book that that praised it for its like honesty and its cutting honesty about its writer. Uh-huh. And I thought, you know, that's the sort of autobiography I'd like to read, especially about a guy like Oliver Stone, like beating the shit out of himself. Wow. And I'm almost done with it. And I, I've really enjoyed the experience. I, I think it's a, it's a very fun book to read. And it seems like the first of a series that he's writing, because this is his first four movies, uh, is the autobiography. Oh. It's, it's his, his youth up to the first wow. four. And I'm expecting there to be uh Yeah, yeah a sequel. So, uh, I really like it. That's interesting. Uh, that makes me want to go through and break his career down into four film sets. If he sticks with yeah. that, although he made, t- t- since he's covered his childhood, might bite off more movies on this next one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, it's funny to hear he really gives no fucks. And I think that's been on, that's been obvious for a long time. Yeah. But like he lets it fly on guy, guys like James Woods and, oh, and like really? a bunch of <laughs> yeah yeah Salvador, which is great right? yeah 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 uh, yeah and Salvador's a movie that we watched for Friendly Fire and I had I wished that I had read this book before we did that episode because there were some interesting uh, nuggets in there. I listened to that, that episode. Process. Yeah, I remember yeah. it well. It was a good one. Um, I read a lot of. We gonna bi- have you on the show next week? Next week. No. Is that next week or no? We we don't even have a date lined up. All right. <laughs> we got to get well, that going. We really do. I 
I want to get you on that show. No, no, no. We'll do it. Um, I've been reading, I read a lot of biographies, a lot of rock biographies and music biographies. So I think that Oliver Stone, that lines up well. Maybe I'll check that out. I'll send it to you when I'm done. Oh, okay. Hardback? Yeah. Of course. I'll, uh, I'll send you a little care package. How's that sound? Ooh. With like yeah. drugs and I'll Oliver cl- Stone books? <laughs> I mean, it, it would be appropriate, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, how many Oliver Stone books have been shipped with drugs in the past like few months? Probably a few. <laughs> Oliver Stone classically is like, you know, I only did cocaine socially. It was never a problem for me to quit. <laughs> is that really what he said? Yeah. Oh, really? I mean... Here's the thing, like this is this is 80s Oliver Stone talking about it, like around the time he won the uh, the Oscar, and he sets it down a little while after that. So I don't believe that's in reference to any more recent right uh, cocaine binges. But at the time, that's what he said about his habit. I could see that actually, uh, and I'm not uh, I'm not condoning casual use of cocaine, but I could see Oliver Stone being one of those guys that like partied hard with certain crowds and while he was doing a movie maybe and then, and then putting it away. 80s cocaine just seems like a different, different cat, (laughs) different vibe. Maybe so. Who knows? You know what? I want to keep all this stuff because this is movie related. So I'll say, Hey, welcome to movie crush. I'm here with Adam Pranica, my old friend, uh, to talk, to continue our series on PT Anderson, uh, with, uh, another in the line of uh, difficult movies with unlikable characters called the master. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you have me on for this series. Difficult person. Oh, very unlikable. You're the easiest and you're the most likable. Are you kidding me? It's good to see your face again, man. Yeah. Likewise. It's been a while since we've done the show together. I know it's uh, I feel like there will be blood was maybe too long ago. Uh, And these are, you know, you called it movie therapy, I think. Yeah. Just get our heads right. I did I did call it movie therapy because it uh it feels so good to talk about such bad people for a couple <laughs> of hours and then uh have a couple of drinks with you in the process. Yeah, so what what are we drinking tonight? What are you drinking? Uh I am drinking a tequila soda okay. in uh in the classic proportions. My classic proportions is about uh, three quarters Casamigos Blanco tequila. Okay. And a little splash of club soda, <laughs> twist of lime. And what the soda's uh, just to give it a little fizz. Oh wow. In a great big yeah. <laughs> uh great big Stanley double walled <laughs> cup. Uh so you go Casamigos Blanco. I do for for the uh, for the splash of soda purposes. Okay. Gotcha. I think it's just a delicious sipping tequila. It's been mm-hmm. it's been my favorite for a long time. It is, man. I have the. I, I mean, Emily likes the blanco. I like the gold. Uh, she likes the gold too. But yeah, it's really just tasty. I think the reason I like the blanco is because I like it cold. If I were drinking the darker tequilas, I would just fill a glass with it with probably no ice and, mm-hmm. and sip on it. It's really hot here lately oh yeah what's going on out there i've heard is it like uh it was 100 plus (laughs) it was like 118 over the weekend are you serious not in santa monica really not in santa monica uh a little more eastward a Mm -hmm. little more inland as it's called uh it got terrifically hot but not much cooler in santa monica it was around 100 jesus man that's hot it i don't think yeah i mean you know atlanta is just hot as hell but uh, you got that wet heat, though. Yeah, it's wet heat, but we've got smoke heat now. Yeah, I don't think we've had a hundred 
this summer. Even heat index, I don't think we've gotten yeah. up that high. Yeah. But, you know, it'll it's starting to cool down like a tiny, tiny bit. But yeah. it, it stays hot through, you know, into October generally in Atlanta. I bet. I bet. Get a good fall, though. Yeah. Your, your leaves are going to change any moment. Yeah, they're starting to fall a little bit, but it should be a good one. Listen to us old men talking about foliage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This sounds uh, sounds like a Coen Brothers movie title. <laughs> so I'm drinking uh, gin and tonic. You texted me, what am I drinking? And because of the master, I made the joke that we should drink rocket fuel and paint thinner. Uh, yeah. If you haven't seen the movie, this will all be clear pretty soon why we made that joke. But I'm drinking Hendrix and tonic, a big fat double nice. and a big glass. So I didn't have to go up again in a Yeti mug. It's like a Yeti coffee mug, but they're giant. Uh, And a couple of, basically half of a lime squeezed in there. Fever tree tree tonic. You hipped me to the Yeti family of products Mm. uh, a year or two ago. A a type of cup I kind of turned my nose up to for a time, (laughs) but I'm a believer now. Those things work. I'm telling you, man, I'm a big fan of iced water. And just generally anything I put ice in, I want it to stay that way. And if you care about ther- thermodynamics at all, <laughs> you're going to be a fan of the, the Yeti products. Yeah, you can throw ice water in that thing, put it on your nightstand, and then the next morning you've got ice water. It's great. You not only have ice water, you don't have a sweaty cup on your nightstand making all kinds of unsightly rings. That's right. So Elaine's not mad at you. No. Emily's no, you don't not want mad that. <laughs> no. It, yeah. We, it's all about reducing the chances of, of your wife being mad at you. We do a pretty good job of that, Adam. I think. Uh, so let's. Hey, uh, the uh, the the talk of rocket fuel brings a question to mind. Okay. And I hope you don't mind me uh, throwing a, a bomb in the right in the beginning no, of no. your show. Bomb it. What's What's the worst thing you've ever drank, alcoholically? Because I think there's a lot of scenes like, like a a shot react, mm-hmm. like a reaction to drinking something terrible yeah, is Phil like Hoffman, a, for sure his you, are great you, you get that a bunch in this movie and it really made me think of like what's the worst shot i've taken or what's the worst drink i've ever had well you know i've got a really quick and easy answer to be honest at first i was like wait a minute what could that be and then two things sprang to mind and one that i know you've had because it's become a max fun tradition but malort yep uh yeah describe it it's wormwood liqueur is that that's yeah it's it's all the quote unquote fun of absinthe but it's like amplified herbaceousness it is just so hyper herby oh, is that what absinthe tastes like i've never I had don't it i like absinthe for its its wormwoody flavor but this is like wormwood and a whole bunch of other uh flavors in it it's it's a lot it's a lot to take on Adam, but I, I don't find it particularly burny. Okay. You well, know? no, it's not burny. It's just that taste it stays with you for a while. Yeah, it's a taste that lingers. Uh, I just literally thought of the worst dad joke ever. Uh-huh. It just popped into my head, and I don't even know if I should say it. <laughs> oh, you got you have to now. Oh, God. I don't, this is a, a window into how my brain works. We were talking about absinthe, and my joke that popped into my head was, uh, you know, I've had absinthe, but last time I had it, it got it was really gassy. Because you know what they say, absinthe makes the farts grow stronger. <laughs> yeah, that's 
Something you should have kept to yourself. How did that just <laughs> pop into my head? That's a, a fully formed joke. Editor. <laughs> uh, so the worst thing I've had is Malort. As far as that aftertaste, it's really bad, and, and it's only the only reason I ever have it is at Max Fun when everyone's passing the bottle around, which yeah. seems very risky these days. Boy, it really is passing a bottle around a room of three hundred people. Fifty people. <laughs> uh, so that and. Uh, you know, when you first start drinking in college and stuff, or that's when I started drinking, but whenever that was, you experiment with some really weird things. And I drank. You do. Uh, I had one really, really long, bad night with Mad Dog 2020, uh, quote unquote, wine. Yeah. Threw up bad stuff. Passed out in the I freshman girl like storm. For me in college, I was I was definitely looking for proof, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know what I wanted. All I know... All I knew is that I wanted it to be strong. Right. And so, like, the Mad Dog is strong. The the Hurricane Ice 40s were strong. I like don't even know what that beer. is. It's, like, one of the many, like, off-brand malt liquors that you could get in a in a 40-ounce format. Yeah. At the time. I, I don't even know those. if they still make it anymore. Not that, but, like, Schlitz and uh, Colt 45. Yeah. I used to go down that road. Totally. Uh, but like liquor wise, I would always want like not the not the eighty proof, but the one hundred proof. Uh-huh. Like if I'm if I'm giving an older person money to to buy me something, like I want it to be strong. And those were often like really big mistakes. Yeah. Um I Yukon Jack comes to mind Ooh. as one of the one of the bottles I used to get from time to time. Remember Goldschlager? I do. I do remember that. Goldschlager, uh, Aftershock. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh Avalanche was the uh was the was the cools of of that type of liqueur, right? Minty flavor. Right, right. And aftershock. Man. Yeah. Yeah, I, mistakes were made. And I used to drink like uh I thought I was very refined when I started drinking seven and sevens, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which is funny. You really need a Sherpa at that yeah. age, don't you? <laughs> you Someone I, I was never I was I think I was always around the youngest person of the group, so I never got to become the guy who bought <laughs> for other people the way yeah. that my friends often were. But I really I feel like I would have had the heart to mm-hmm. to be the liquor Sherpa for someone, to be like, you know, the 80-proof absolute is actually better mm-hmm. and more mixable than <laughs> the red label 100 that you're getting. Trust me on this. Yeah, if, if you and I don't make an animated cartoon soon called Booze Sherpa, then we're doing the wrong thing in life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, animation's the, the only thing in production right now. Let's go for that. Uh, and so the reason you mentioned that worst thing we've ever had is because of the master and the fact that a really big, not big, but a substantial part of this movie has to do with this character of Freddie Quell, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character, drinking these homemade chemical drinks literally made out of rocket fuel or paint thinner I imagine, ter- I mean, it, those are the only two kind of brands you see. I think he drinks Lysol out of the medicine cabinet yeah. at one point, just straight yeah. up liquid Lysol. I love, like, you you see the first moment of this early on, and then I feel like it's it's repeated throughout the film, but one of the moments that, that confused me almost was that when he's working as the photographer and he's in the, 
he's in the the room where he exposes the film. Yeah. And he's using tongs to muddle uh, it. <laughs> to muddle some limes. I was like, oh, this guy really uh-huh. he he started like dedicating himself to the craft. This looks like a real right. cocktail he's making. No, he's just making it out of uh photomat chemicals. <laughs> totally, dude. He is drinking developing chemicals. He's drinking stop bath. Yeah. Did you ever do any of that? Dark room, <laughs> dark room stuff? Not drinking it, but... I love the idea of like improvised alcoholic beverages being called dark room stuff. <laughs> and I think that that should be, that should be canon for us. You ever go dark room, Chuck? <laughs> Did you ever develop pictures or anything? Did you ever do that? <laughs> Seriously? Oh, no. Oh, okay. Uh, no. No, I never did. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I could, uh, obviously, you wouldn't want to drink any of that stuff. I mean, that stuff is just, it is nasty, raw chemical solutions. Like, what does that do to you? It's, it's stuff you want to wear a mask to uh, to use, right? Because the fumes are so intense. No, you, you don't have to wear a mask in there, but it's pretty no? stinky. And like, uh, what I wondered through all this was, because the character of um, Lancaster Dodd, another great named character from P.T. Anderson. Uh, yeah. He really takes a shine to this booze that he's making. And I wonder, like, I never went down the road of experimenting with, like, Robitussin blasting mm-hmm. and all that stuff that I saw other people doing. But I think it might be something like that, where it's like, it's not drunk even. It's a different feeling. Yeah, I was never into purple drank myself. <laughs> Nor did I really know anyone who was when I was in college. For us, it was very specifically booze, beer, or drugs, like actual drugs, not over-the-counter <laughs> drugs. And that's so weird, right? Like, why would we have risked uh, taking ecstasy from a source that you can't True. Uh, corroborate instead of... Procter and Gamble. <laughs> yeah. I mean, none of us well, were thinking clearly at the time. So Yeah, I mean, I felt myself just trying to make an argument that uh, drinking Robitussin in large quantities is really bad for you, but ecstasy is just fine. Uh, I'm not going to make that argument, but I do know that like there were kids in the grades below me in high school that were drinking Robitussin and doing Glade hits, like oh. spraying gl- Glade through a towel and then inhaling it. And we never messed with any of that stuff, man. That was like, I don't know. That just seemed stupid. I grew up with really painful migraines, like debilitating, put you on the floor, make you throw up kind of migraines. And so I, as I grew older, I got, the migraines went away, but my uh, fear of headaches mm-hmm. really grew. And I think that was one of the main reasons I never wanted to fuck around with that stuff Yeah, was... Stuff like uh, like inhaling other things and and uh, and drinking super high proof alcohol like it was a hangover almost instantaneously and I really resisted anything that that would do that. I really tried my best not to endure a hangover for that reason. Yeah, it's interesting how it's played in this movie though because alcoholism is a big part of Freddie's character. Um, that's the I mean, he's he's got a lot of problems, let's be honest, but his alcoholism is definitely definitely one of them. And then uh, Phil Hoffman's character, Lancaster Dodd, is he's into it, but like you get the feeling that he has to keep that pretty quiet, you know? 
he's so amused by Freddy, like off the bat. Yeah. And I love how ambiguous that relationship is even throughout the film, mm-hmm. right? Like there's the, it's pretty clearly like a, a project he sees in him. Like if he could fix Freddie Quell, right. That would be a tangible example of his greatness, right? Instead mm-hmm. of just the book writing and the, and the quote unquote, uh, cult that he's constructed. Like if he could get through to him, that would be proof that he's got, he's got the supernatural powers that, that maybe his believers, uh, believe him to have, but also like, there's a way that Philip Seymour Hoffman looks at Joaquin Phoenix in this mm-hmm. movie that is like it's so warm. Yeah. He he it's loves warmth. Him. And I think you could read it as romantic love in certain scenes, but if it's not that, it's like the sort of warmth that you want any of your closest pals to see you with. It's I I found myself really taken by it. Yeah, and it might just be because I love and miss Philip Seymour Hoffman as much as I do, and that true. like I really, really gravitate toward that stuff. Yeah, no, that definitely played in my mind too. Um, was missing him and how like kind of charming and lovable he can be at times in this movie. Um, yeah. But he does, and you know, there's plenty of speculation through critics online about whether or not it was uh, homoerotic and romantic, and I read it as more of a uh, how you would look at a really old friend of yours or something. And he, you know, at some point we we need to talk about the fact that he does say that they were, they were together in a past life and you finally get the story at the end, which maybe we'll save that. But Mm -hmm. uh, that maybe that was what it was, was that he looked at him as like this guy that I love that I've been through so much with, but he was someone that he just met. Yeah, you know, that's a great observation because that's there's some repetition of that throughout the film. Like, I feel like I know you. Yeah. I'll figure it out eventually. Definitely know you from somewhere. Yeah. When was you saw this in the theater, I take it? I did. I went out to see it. Uh, it screened in 70 in Seattle. So oh, yeah. I made sure I, I got out to see it during one of those screenings. I think I did too, actually. Uh, I think I went with my friend Scotty. And, you know, it's a beautiful, big movie in that 70 millimeter. Uh, I think he shot it in 65 and exhibited it in 70, which I didn't mm-hmm. know quite was a thing. Um, how does that work? Uh, as a ex-projectionist, I can tell you that uh, you want those millimeters between 65 and 70 for your soundtrack. Those are, the, are going to okay. be your soundtrack waveforms in the cellulose. Because you sixteen millimeter, then it should be thirty two, but it's thirty five for the soundtrack. Is that right? I don't know how it works for sixteen millimeter. Okay. I will say, as a projectionist for thirty five millimeter and for seventy millimeter, that's how it worked. All right. So it looked great. I mean, this he's. Uh, I think especially after there will be blood, or these two paired together. He is really, at this point in his career, come into his own as just an absolute master of the the visual that you're seeing on screen. And Boogie Nights, all that stuff look, look great and fine. But these two, man, is where he goes like into John Ford territory 
of right. like some some of the all time masters of like the visual aspects. It's so beautiful, and it's you know like like John Ford was so good at like uh, territorial, mm-hmm. like wide open space gorgeousness, but the master has so many different types of settings, right? There's there's on the ocean, there's on the beach, there's uh, on the boat, there's mm-hmm. inside the boat, there's inside that old timey house. Yeah. Uh, there's there's inside the uh, that what I what's probably a mansion in England. Yeah. Uh, so many different places made to look beautiful. Yeah. 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 yeah the I desert. Mean, it's kind of broken down almost. Uh, each act has has its own sort of main setting. I mean, that whole first third is at sea uh, with a little New York, and then that whole middle chunk is at that house. Uh, yeah. And I guess, where is that? Is that in Northern California? Or? I'm not really sure where it's supposed this to be. This is Laura Dern's house? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, it's supposed to be Philly, I guess, but I don't know if they shot it there. Hmm. But then that last bit is Phoenix. and right. the, And the desert right. stuff and the salt flats. But... Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting visual. I mean, some gorgeous shots, like all the stuff at sea is amazing. That shot of him passed out on, on the top of the boat when they're throwing shit at him is just unbelievable. Uh, the shot of the the Sea Org, and I'm going to mix in Scientology stuff because let's be honest, sure. yeah. the, the, the one of the Sea Org boat going under the Golden Gate Bridge with the sun going down, just unbelievable. So beautiful. So great. I... <laughs> It's it's unfair, really, yeah. to watch a film like this right now. I mean, not to date this episode at all, but not a lot of brand new movies are coming out <laughs> right know. now or uh, or in the short term. And it, I think it's one of the things that makes this project we're doing so gratifying is yeah. is returning to things that are great and remembering how awesome it is to see great movies. Yeah, uh god the shot in the um like the 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 money he has and the artists that he can hire to create these worlds. Um that shopping mall, the department store where yeah. he he takes on work as a photographer and that long tracking shot with the the floor model just sort of weaving in and out of stuff and just the art direction is just incredible, dude. It's amazing. Bob Elswit is like frequently Paul Thomas Anderson's cam op yeah. for his movies and he was not in this one. Oh, really? Did you read about who this guy was? No, is? I figured it was Ellswit. <laughs> yeah, I figured it was too. Uh, his name is Mihai Malamer Jr. He's Romanian. Wow. And he had a cu- just a couple of credits before the master. Imagine being Mihai <laughs> yeah. and, getting the, and getting the call. How did he get like the call? He, had he done he, large format? It looks like he did a couple Coppola films, but like mm. in in 2009 and 2011, Coppola films. Right, sure. And then uh, and then he gets the call to do The Master. Like, that's a lot of trust yeah. for a PTA. But this is also, I feel like, a, a version of Paul Thomas Anderson that that has become way more interested in moving his own cameras around mm-hmm. in in creating his own compositions and taking a heavier hand in the camera, in the camera department specifically than maybe he ever has. And this is like a trend for him throughout his career. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
that that just one shot. I mean, he's known for his sort of long, long single take shots, but they usually entail sort of uh, like the stuff in Boogie Nights, it, like the camera doing these crazy things, like going up on a cherry picker and moving around. But this was just a very sort of elegant, uh, steady cam shot, I guess, kind of weaving through this department store. You know what's insane about PTA, one of the things, is that like he's that director that sits underneath the camera and works with actors and looks at it at expression and and experiences it on a on a personal level. Like yeah. he's not a director who looks into the monitor and shit. And that's it's crazy to think that he's getting these kind of compositions and sequences like what you're describing. And I'm not sure he's seeing that through the monitor. He's looking over at his cinematographer and going, did we get it? Right. And he's being told that they did. And what he's watching is is life. If it looks yeah. real in life, then it's good enough for him. And that feels so risky. It does. You know, I have not directed a movie, but I... Uh was going to at one point and I was sort of in halfway through raising some money for a very small independent film and had written the script and I was going to uh, do that that way. I was not going to yeah. be in a, in a tent looking at a monitor. I wanted to be really near the camera yeah. and, and watching the scene play out in front of me. You want to be an actor's director. That seems to be really like did. the way to go. Yeah. Um, I'll probably never know. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I mean, you've directed stuff. What did you do? I mean, the, the, the seduction of doing it like PTA is, has always been there. Like I, like I mostly did corporate stuff, but I still worked with professional actors fairly often. And like, I always wanted to give it that kind of juice. I always wanted to be an actor's director. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's hard. It's hard when you're not working with Hollywood budgets. And it's hard when you're not working with uh, Hollywood cinematographers. Like the level of trust that you get from working in a system like PTA has been able to, I think allows for that kind of thing in a way that you and I could probably never experience. I, I feel like it would be very stressful for you and I to sit cross-legged beneath the camera and watch a scene unfold and just believe that it's getting (laughs) captured in the way that you're seeing it. See, I think I would have a lot easier time because I was not a camera guy. I, I I would hire people that knew what they were doing and just say like, I trust that you're getting this and we'll look at it afterward, but I gotta, I gotta stand here and watch these actors. I think uh, it becomes so much easier when it's Bob Ellswood over your shoulder. Yeah. Like (laughs) I I wouldn't even think about it if you were him. It would, it'd be done. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then 
Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I mean, let's let's talk about these characters maybe kind of one at a time. Uh, Freddie Quell, the the alcoholic sort of <sighs> depraved. Um, there's nothing likable about this guy. It's really not the kind of character you see a lot in movies as your kind of protagonist in a way. Um, like I would argue, it's his. It's really about both these guys, but it's kind of his movie even more than a movie about yeah. Lancaster Dodd. But. Um, just such a depraved, disgusting, uh, troubled, troubled guy. We talk a lot on Friendly Fire about how much we respect an actor uh, willing to give up their vanity yeah. for a role. And this feels like that kind of role. This is yeah. a Joaquin Phoenix who had just come off of the weird art project of, uh, of what, what was that called? I'm Not There? Uh, I, I think... Oh, oh, his like documentary thing. I think this was the first film he did after oh, wow. that. Right, this was his return to. Uh, I think you're professionalism, right. Professionalism, yeah, I, yeah. Maybe I'd call it. And I think you could make the case 
right now in uh, in the year 2020, like if you're drafting actors in a kind of fantasy actor draft, how is he not one of the top picks? Yeah. He's, I think he's one of the greatest living actors we have. And I think this is an example of that. It's so much more than just uh, an ability to read a line. It's like a totally inhabited character physically. Yeah. In a way that is repulsive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good word. I kept saying disgusting, but repulsive is really the word. I mean, and they set it up so well in the beginning with the the Navy stuff, drinking the rocket yeah. fuel, um, standing there before he jumps onto the sandcastle naked lady and and has sex with her is when he when he's standing there all hunched over and he stands with his you know yeah. he's, he has that messed up shoulder and he really plays that up yeah makes those shoulders go forward puts his arms on like sort of the back of his hips and his side and just sort of snarls at the scene and and then just like gets in there and starts humping the sandcastle like in the first five minutes of the movie. <laughs> There's something like oddly familiar about him and his posture. Like I feel like growing up, I knew I, or I encountered old World War II vets who with the high-waisted pants uh-huh. who were like bent over at the waist who, yeah, yeah. who looked like this. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of true. Actually. It really feels real. Yeah, and it and it felt very of uh, he he very much looked like a guy from 1950, um, and you know he's a, he's an he's a guy who has the shoulder thing. He's a guy who has his the scar or whatever. I'm not sure how that happened on his lip. The the cleft palate thing. Was it a cleft palate? I wasn't sure. I think so. Yeah. But these are like both physical traits that he has used to his advantage in his career. Um, like in a big way, I think he's really leaned into both of them. The I've always respected and been just horrified by an actor's willingness to change their body for a role. Yeah. You know, like, like the, the, the Clooney and Sicario or the Stallone and Copland yeah. Or it's inverse, which is like an emaciated Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Like, you know what he looks like normally. And he's a beautiful person. But to see him uh, folded in on himself and with the sunken cheeks and and the crazy eyes, it's it's really incredible to see an actor do this to themselves. Yeah. And, and just his, his acting in this movie is just incredible. It's unbelievable. Like you so understand who this guy is without being even able to understand like on a personal level, like you don't identify, but you fully get who this dude is. It's so, uh, it's so vital to have Lancaster Dodd look at him with love. And I think he's inserted into this story as soon as possible to cut off a viewer's inclination to just dismiss Freddie Quell right away. Yeah. I think like we get, we get the beginning of the movie belongs to Freddie Quell, but I think before a viewer sees him as an utterly lost cause, we get right up to that line, Mm -hmm. but then we get the affection from Lancaster Dodd for him. And it's, it stops it just short of, of being irredeemable. Right. Because I think, 
I, I don't think you could do two and a half hours with Freddy Quell unless you were at least on some level rooting for his redemption, right? And oh, I think man. there, I'm trying to. There think may if I be did. a point of no return with him that that I think the film knows, and it's trying to position itself in defense of him, maybe using Lancaster Dodd as a way to to prevent you from hating him in an irredeemable way. See, I don't think I hated him, but I don't know if I ever rooted for him in the sense that I was thinking, you know, let's let's get this guy turned around. Like I didn't care. <laughs> I really didn't care about this guy yeah. being okay. It was to me more of a voyeuristic sort of study of you know, it's it's almost like watching Barfly or something. Or, or thinking about like hanging out with Charles Bukowski on his comparison. worst day is like uh, irredeemable. Like that's not for me to say. All I know is I didn't, I wasn't rooting for him ever. <laughs> let's try to, let's t- try to rewind like the endings of Paul Thomas Anderson films because when I saw this film for the first time, I was almost expecting a Freddie Quell. Uh, lays in Amy Amy Adams' lap in the end, kind of end of Boogie Nights style mm. redemption for the character. Were you when you saw this film for the first time? Were you expecting that kind of thing, or were you so turned off by Quell in the beginning that you were like, "Well, I'm just going to watch this car crash for for two hours and and be entertained by two of the greatest living actors?" I think I could have seen it. I don't know if I was hoping for it, but I think I definitely could have seen it going that way when he goes to England at the end. That could have been Marky Mark going back to Burt Reynolds or, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is just like all those other movies. It's a father-son thing going on. Or I could have seen it going the way of Daniel Plainview. I think I kept waiting for one of them to kill the other. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, ne- but none of that PTA happens. Because PTA made it clear that that was on the table. He, he definitely <laughs> did. Um, but that I think I was waiting for that to happen more than I was waiting for the Boogie Nights ending. But neither one of them happened. I wonder to what extent he knew that in constructing the story. Like if he's playing with expectations in that way. Maybe. Yeah. I also think that P.T. Anderson doesn't think about an audience at all. I hope he doesn't. I don't, I hope he doesn't think of me yeah. <laughs> for a second. <laughs> I w- when we're done with this project, I would like someone to like tweet it to him maybe, but uh, sure. That'd I don't want to, nice. uh, no, I, I don't think he should be doing that. I want to point out, but um, yeah, I think he's, he's, he's doing his own thing at this point in his career. Like starting with there will be blood. I think we both agreed was when he really, um, is sort of kind of risky as Magnolia was in certain aspects. Uh, he really kind of took a right turn, I think, at There Will Be Blood, and then follow, yeah. following up with this movie. It's crazy. Who, did, it really is. Did either one of them it's, win an Academy Award? It's so much more open-ended than his other films. It is. Did it win an Academy Award? No, did, uh, did either one of the guys, did, did they get nominated for Academy Awards for this? Joaquin... Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams were nominated for Academy Awards, okay. but uh, none of them won. All right. Interesting. Amy Adams was good. I don't know about Oscar worthy. She was good. I mean, she was great, but t- there wasn't a ton there for her. I love that boil happening 
inside her, mm-hmm. like that coiled spring that you knew was there. And and I think uh, I think Philip Seymour Hoffman also had that quality in this movie of like an ability to explode. And he explodes a couple of times in this movie. Yeah. But Amy Adams also had that quality. And in a way that I really appreciated, like there were, she was definitely a a puppet master mm-hmm. for Lancaster Dodd in a very interesting way, in a way that yeah. the film does not deeply dive into. But you can tell they give her a couple of scenes where where there is a there's a power to her. Well, that, the, hand, uh, the hand job scene. That is apparent. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, that, <laughs> it, it's funny to like think about that scene, but I think that's really the sort of the point of it all was, um, I mean, he is uh, completely beholden to her in that scene. He He feels, he never feels more like a sort of broken old man than when he's standing there at the sink getting jerked <laughs> off by his wife, who's sort of like, you know, the mom in that scene, almost the way she's talking to him. It's a little creepy. Will you come for me? Will you come for me? Like, I mean, she's great. I don't know why I said she shouldn't have gotten nominated. Not, it was a very understated role, but that doesn't mean it was, are you, wasn't fantastic. Are you suggesting that that would have been a good, uh, a good reel to show for her, uh, for her, for her nomination? Yeah, totally. Like they throw to Amy Adams in the crowd, like clapping a couple of times. Uh-huh. That's me. That's Who's, a powerful scene, though. We'll never... This is the... Tra- one of the many tragedies of Philip Seymour Hoffman's death is that like, we, we won't get a film-for-film, year-after-year competition of who's the greatest living actor the way that like he could have gone back and forth with Paul Thomas Anderson films with Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. Like... Like, was there a cut scene of Daniel Day-Lewis getting a hand job right. in There Will Be Blood? <laughs> and could we possibly measure them against each other? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, I miss I miss him so much. He was such a good actor. And I read up a little there, bit more today about his drug use and how he went out. And it was just so fucking sad and tragic. Had a family and, like, this kind of secret addiction. Yeah. After being clean forever. I mean, he, he was clean for 23 years. Yeah, it's you brutal. can you can never let up with addiction. That's yeah. uh that's a thing uh our our friend John Roderick has said. It's a it's a struggle every day. There is speaking of the scene, I wanted to just emphasize how great the sound that Philip Seymour Hoffman makes. <laughs> yeah. If he's either in pain, like from taking a shot of, it's, it's of some fire water, I noticed or that. coming. It's the same sound. <laughs> or like in the Mattress Man commercial from uh, Punch Drunk Love, yeah. when he falls onto the ground, that, oh God. <laughs> it's so great. I so noticed that in this. Every time he took a drink of his moonshine, for lack of a better word, and then when he when he when he finally came in the hand job scene, it was the exact same like sort of uh painful it's, release sound. <laughs> it's one of my favorite sounds in the entire world. It is, is that <laughs> you make that your it ringtone. It's so funny. It is so fucking funny. If if you're listening to this show and you haven't seen the Mattress Man commercial yeah. from Punch Drunk Love, it's a it's an extra feature on the DVD and you can see it on YouTube. Uh-huh. 
It's awesome. <laughs> it's. I'm not even going to spoil it. Just watch it. Yeah, it's great. I saw that. I had that, uh, I had that DVD back in the day. Um, so uh, the other thing with Freddie is his, uh, these fights that he gets in. Yeah. These physical altercations ranging from, and, and each one sort of happens the same way. He is 100%, uh, 100% the prov- pro- provocateur each time. <laughs> he is not yeah. like, he's starting it. He's not getting picked on. He always just goes after these guys. And a lot of times, I, I want to say for no reason, that the guy in the photography studio, he just <laughs> completely goes after like moving those I, lights in and like attacking this dude. I love how awkward and painful looking all of the fights are. They look real. And that includes and that includes like the fight he gets into on the lawn with, yeah. with Lancaster Dodd later. Like they're dirty. Yeah. And and awkward and you hear like the slap sounds and uh-huh. like it's I have never been in in like a real fist fight, like in a fight fight. Yeah, same here. But it it seems like it seems like how they really are in this movie versus like yeah. the punching each other the like Foley, movie style. the Foley sound punch for punch Rocky style fighting that, that so often we get in in movies. Yeah, these are very real. And he you can tell that Joaquin as an actor is really fucking going for it. Like they're very physical and kind of brutal, although there aren't a lot of punches thrown. Um, that that fight in the department store early on really looked like it might've hurt him in a couple of spots. That guy is hitting him and throwing him. He kind of kicked his ass a little bit, which I love that, that guy. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting. I read the uh, New Yorker review from this movie and it said, um, something about, and you know, the first time we meet Lancaster Dodd is when he gets his picture taken in the mall and attacks him. And I was like, that wasn't mm-hmm. Lancaster Dodd. And then it had a little no. asterisk and it had a note that said, uh, edit. Uh, I was told afterward that this was in fact credited to another actor. And I think that PT Anderson, uh, tried to, uh, I think he was clearly trying to make it seem like the same person. I was like, no, he wasn't. Oh, come on. It's like, you just fucking got that wrong, dude. <laughs> like just own yeah, it. Way to, way to cover yourself. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty bad because it was clearly just some other guy. Um, but the reason he I gets love in- that it's sort of a like the most insane uh, Jerry Maguire style quitting your job scene <laughs> <laughs> because he takes the girl with him. Yeah, he does. Actually, he grabs her hand, doesn't he? <laughs> um, the reason he gets in these fights, though, is really interesting. Like this one was, I think, just some sort of that pent up rage that he had as a as a person. But then the other ones were uh, almost all in defense of Lancaster Dodd. And I got the feeling after like that last one, when the the bill comes down to the basement and the book has been released that he wrote, and he's Mm -hmm. just literally just sort of criticizing like, man, I think he should have just made it a pamphlet and it's too Mm -hmm. long and meandering and it doesn't make much sense. Like he was offering a genuine uh, critique as a fan of his. And I I started to get the impression that he was getting in these fights with these guys, not because he was defending him, but because they were bringing to light what he really knows, which is that he's a fraud. Right. And it made him angry of the truth. Yeah. Yeah. It made him angry that he had, he's been falling for it and it makes him feel good. Well, I mean, to put it into a modern context, I think that is a reaction that a lot of people have towards, uh, confronting uncomfortable truths. 
right? About their belief system, even. Uh, in no way could you brook any sort of criticism of, of your beliefs if you're, if you're Freddie Quell. There's such a tension drawn out in that scene, Chuck, where like they're, they're in that basement next to the printing press, but he walks them out. Yeah, here, let's go outside. <laughs> let's take a walk. And as he's taking the walk, the guy I had to put on the subtitles, but he was uh, he was talking about what a great mystic he is, one of the great mystics. So yeah, it's not yeah. like he was against him even. And he gets him out there and just like throws him on the ground and basically tries to like bury his head in the concrete. There's no faking this sort of of pain during a fight. Like yeah. Go ahead and like roll around on a sidewalk yeah. if you don't believe me. Like it's it's hard and it sucks. And there are so many scenes like this. And this fight scene is one of those examples. Like this looks so painful. I don't know how many takes you get out of actors well, it's doing two, stuff like this. It's two actors who have have come to an agreement, you know, that listen, we're we're going to we're going to go for it on this one. And uh it, and it's going to hurt a little bit, like. But this is what you we need never want to do. Wanna be the guy who accidentally breaks Joaquin Phoenix's nose with a with an errant knee, though. And that's that's the thing that feels so dangerous if you're yeah if you're not a top line actor in a film and you're asked to like go ahead and roll around with him. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and there are a lot of like P.T. Anderson kind of actors, sort of like there will be blood in this. These people that just have a scene or two that have these great faces. Um, yeah. And it, you yeah. know, it has a great regular cast like Jesse Plemons. And I didn't even know who Rami Malek was at the time. I, I kind of forgotten that was Me him. Neither. when he popped yeah. up. I was like, Oh my God, there he is. Freddie Mercury. <laughs> the, uh, the guy who plays, uh, Mr. Moore, the guy who speaks up at the meeting. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's is, awesome. is like what he's, uh, he's, he's one of that guy. Like he's he's the, he's a guy with a great voice and a great face. You know, he's who's made a career out of a great voice and a great face. Well, he did. He's dead. Yeah, Christopher Evan Welch was uh, was in Silicon Valley yeah. most recently. Yeah, he's awesome. Uh, he narrated something too that I saw. He's narrated a bunch of stuff, but he was a prominent narrator of something. And I, I didn't. I looked him up today. I didn't realize that he very sadly died of young, uh, lung cancer in his mid forties. Just brutal. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing about watching movies is like the acceptance, so often like the acceptance of death, right? Yeah. Like you're watching films from even the last decade and to know that that a lot of these guys aren't around anymore is, is awful. It's awful and amazing to to like have an artifact to appreciate them but but it's sad too. It's yeah. sad at the same time. So they Dodd and, and Quell meet um very much by happenstance. I mean, um Freddie Quell basically I love that we're an hour into this and we're like, well let's talk about when they meet. <laughs> well, we're jumping all around. It's not even over. We're going three hours tonight, Jack. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um you know, he he basically poisons this guy and and Salinas and takes off that great fucking shot where he's running, you know, across that, that dirt field being chased yeah. by those guys. But he just happens to stow away on the ship. Like they meet by such happenstance and he's so immediately taken into the fold um, and then rises to the top as a sort of right hand man. 
man, even though there's a bunch of other people around, a bunch of other men that could have been in that position, there was some connection there. Um, and the only thing I could figure out was that he was sort of, there's a very yin yang thing going on with these two guys. Like he was the, he's the, the animal that he needed at his side in a way, this kind of crazy pit bull. I love that we're given the task of stitching those two scenes together, right? Because there's kind of an elliptical edit. Yeah. We see, like, one of low-key my favorite compositions in the movie is is we're overwalking Phoenix's shoulder, and we're racking the, uh, the, the focus back and forth. Like, we're getting those beautiful... Uh, the light is turning beautiful as we're changing the focal point between the ship yeah. and Freddie Quell's shoulder... And then as soon as he hops on board in like a really elegant way, avoiding detection, we wake up with him the next day in the bunk. And I love how we aren't given a specific story about how he's there or why he isn't kicked out. And I like that it's up to us to imagine Mm -hmm. what that scene was like between, between the scenes, I mean. Yeah, like at some point someone had to go to Dodd and say, hey, listen, the stowaway came aboard. But mm-hmm. it's very, I don't know, I think you're right. Like th- you didn't need that drama. Um, another thing I wanted to mention in that shot, though, I, I didn't notice it until, and I think it's the third time I've seen it, I didn't notice it until today. But when you see that first shot of the the boat, uh, the party's going on up top, but he's down on that below deck, Lancaster Dodd is, having a cigarette, having a cool by himself, I think. Or there may be one other person with him. So minty. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't like focus on him or anything. He's just sort of there. Like you don't even know who it is yet at this point in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's L. Ron Hubbard. I love, <laughs> I love how non-confrontational the film is about all of the ways that Lancaster Dodd uses other people. Like, like the inference that the boat was not paid for in mm. the end. Right. That he ended up using the woman who owned the boat as well as as the home that they had that that parlor party in mm-hmm. later on. Like th- we're we're so indirect with our knowledge of those things. And I like being given the respect as a viewer to put that together. Yeah, I mean this nothing about this movie is very straightforward. I, I think a lot of critics the ones who didn't like it were kind of like, what was it about even? Yeah. And, you know, there are arguments that it's it's a movie sort of about an acting exercise in a way. Um, th- there aren't these big character arcs that you're used to seeing where people change and they overcome the obstacle. And, like, he really throws all those conventions kind of out the door with this movie. I mean, as... I'm I'm gesturing towards you mm-hmm. as a professional film critic that you are. <laughs> that I am on the on the hit podcast Friendly Fire. Uh-huh. I think it really it really blows up the film criticism industrial complex to make a film like this. Yeah. Because I think so often you are looking for that meaning. And what if what if there isn't one? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the movie, in that last scene, you you expect some kind of uh, like he goes all the way to England. He he's called on a telephone in the middle of an empty theater, which is great, and uh, he goes to England, and you get you're, you're waiting for that thing to happen, 
and it doesn't happen. And in fact, one of the great lines of the movie to me is, is Joaquin, I think, is sort of trying to make good a little bit and says, you know, maybe in the next life, like kind of a throwaway saying. And he goes very seriously, if we meet in the next life, you will be my mortal em- enemy and I will, I will show you no mercy. <laughs> it's such a great kind of fuck you at the end of this thing. It's the way that I want to toast and be toasted for the rest of my life. <laughs> like the next time I see you, Chuck, I hope that's the toast with you, that we share. <laughs> well, and we'll do it in the uh, in the bar in the valley, right? The boogie yeah. or the uh, Magnolia Bar. Let's do that because we're going to buy the Boogie Nights house. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. Uh. I meant to mention earlier too, you know, my grandfather was a, was a drunk who would, who would do stuff like this. He was, uh, my dad's dad was a, and he died when I was like five or something. So I didn't really know him, but he, he was an old school forties, fifties, mean ass drunk who would, when he was out of booze, he would drink whatever was in the medicine cabinet, you know? Wow. Uh, not a good guy to my dad, but I did not have the pleasure or displeasure of knowing him very well, but I've I've heard quite a few stories of stuff like drinking turpentine and and Lysol and shit like that. It's crazy. You don't get to choose what kind of drunk you are, and I'm grateful right. that I am that I am a a jovial sleepy drunk <laughs> yeah, instead <me. laughs> of of the other kind. Yeah, me too, man. God, the because, other kind is such a bummer. The fighty fighty yeah. drunks. Ugh. You can't control it. No. And you can't even hang out with those guys. No. No, you the best you can do is surround yourself from the surround yourself with the same kind. Yeah, I was uh when I lived in Arizona for a year, I was friends with this one guy sort of not even. He was just sort of in the group that I partied with and boy, this guy was one of those dudes that would get in a fight every weekend. And I just, I couldn't be around him because I was always, yeah. and I was always, you know, I was the good guy. I was always trying to be like, oh no, man, it, it, it's cool. Don't do that. Like, that's going to ruin everyone's night. Like, come on, man, let's go have fun. Let's go over here. Come here. Let's go over here. It was always, let's go over here. Let's get away from what you're mad at and just come on over here because that'll ruin the night for everyone. Yeah. Like it does yeah. every weekend, but you couldn't do it. You know, he would, you would see it in his head and he would go find yeah. that, find that guy later at the party and beat his ass. It's just like. Those people are angry at, at life, you know, sort of like it's uh, so Freddie hard Quell. to chill out in life anyway. That I, I just don't understand the seeking it out the way that is. But that's, I mean, it's a disease, right? Like, like that kind of that kind of consumption, yeah, can't be controlled. No, he's. I mean, something bad happened to that guy when he was a kid. You know, yeah, had to. Have. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's why you, you thin those guys out from your social herd. You surround sure. yourself with the sleepy laughers like you and me, <laughs> and then you're not worrying about uh, punch them out anymore. <laughs> sleepy laughers. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the scene, and it's a, a it's sort of a sequence, but really just sort of two scenes, when he first, uh, the first processing scene. So um, it would be the analog to... Uh, in Scientology, what, what's it called? A, uh, I used to know because I did deep dives in Scientology. Oh, really? Yeah, on I got... your hit on your hit podcast. <laughs> well, I read the book and I, I did. I was sort of obsessed with it for a little while. Um, not processing. Oh shit, I can't remember now. People are yelling at their radios, but it's a seventeen-minute scene, dude. 
where yeah. he and there's a little bit of flashback because you get a little bit of the Doris story there, but um, it co- it keeps coming back and it's 17 minutes long, which is crazy. This film really kind of exists out of time because the the reason I say that is because I almost don't believe you when you say that it's it's 17 minutes. It is. It's so long. It really is. Yeah, because there's the beginning part where he sort of does the processing and then he farts and that's the end of that mm -hmm, part. mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I I love that part too because Phil Hoffman is just like, you silly animal. (laughs) But he loves it, you know. I mean, this is this is what you get when you're of the caliber of Paul Thomas Anderson, right? Yeah. You get your 17-minute scene if you want it. Right. So you get that beginning part where they sort of do it, but not really. And then it goes into that really intense round two when he's doing the don't blink and he's firing the questions. And uh, they walk out of there like, that's their bond, man. That's when they really fucking come together. And I feel like Freddie feels like he was really helped. You can see, it's almost like primal scream therapy or something. You can see on his face, like, I actually feel good and I haven't felt good in a long time. You need those moments in a movie like this, right? You need you need the pressure released. You can't always exist in Freddie's mind. I don't think that's a thing you can endure for, for two and a half hours. No. <laughs> And so it feels good to get like a little victory with him, even if it's even if it's fake, even if it's uh, a charlatan making it happen. Right. I feel like I mean, this is the same feeling I had when he went from wall to window, like the wall to window scene is another example of, of like the insanity of this practice. Yeah. And it's it's a weird kind of montage, right? This is like the Rudy montage of like him getting better at football. He's getting better at hypnotizing himself as things go on. Yeah. And you kind of like exalt in his victory at the end of of him finally getting it, even if it is insane, even if it is coming from inside himself or from Lancaster Dodd. Yeah, and that's part of a sequence too where uh, it's right after the family dinner happens where they're all like, we got to get rid of this guy, man. He's a legit danger. And very magnanimously, uh, Lancaster Dodd just sort of says, well, then we have failed him if we allow him to go. Um, right. Tis, tis that not true. He's, he's got his a tis. Uh, <laughs> and then they all begin this sort of, there's that sequence intercut with Amy Adams reading him sort of softcore porn which he does yeah. not want to hear that from her, which is interesting. Like yeah. she's, she's sort of the only woman in this movie he doesn't objectify. And then the Rami Malek stuff, that sort of face-to-face uh, therapy that they're going through, they're, they're just breaking him down, basically. They're doing that therapy because all three of them know about Rami Malek's wife's attempted hand job, right? Is that not part of the thing, too? I think so. I mean, she says, I think he wants me. And, and he's definitely, I feel like they know he's a threat to their marriage. Do you feel like it's intentional that Rami Malik's wife in this movie, which is one of Dodd's daughters, looks a lot like the department store lady? No, I think that was probably purposeful. They they look a lot alike. Yeah. I think that attraction's natural. You sound like the guy from The New Yorker. 
Do you think, uh, I mean, do you think she finally got her hand job with him? Off, like no off movie, <laughs> no Hollywood film can have two hand job scenes. That's one of the rules of Hollywood, right? Like, I think so. <laughs> you got to pick one and cut the other. Uh, yeah, but you could, uh, I think if you're going to read between the lines and stuff that happens off screen, I could see a, a, a dalliance having happened. Yeah. And yeah. and it's kind of cool not to know and not to show that, you know? It's fun to watch a Rami Malek in this movie, like pre height of his powers. Yeah. And also like to a certain extent, Jesse Plemons, like, yeah. like those two actors are, Boy, are capital G great actors. Yeah. And you can like to have them on the periphery of this movie and this story is like, God, what a gift. Yeah, Plemons is awesome. And he has one of the lines um, that I love so much, which is he's making, you know, he's just making this stuff up as he goes. And yeah. apparently that line, and I think you probably know this, but um, P.T. Anderson screened this for Tom Cruise, his buddy, very obviously noted Scientologist. And it's very clear this is a movie that was inspired by L. Ron Hubbard in the beginnings of Scientology, even though all he did and all Harvey Weinstein and Miramax and everyone did was like, no, it's not about Scientology at all. It's like super about Scientology. You gotta Scientology. believe Harvey Weinstein with whatever he tells you. Yeah. <laughs> Very trustworthy guy. But, um, oh shit, what was I just saying? Uh, screened it for Tom Cruise. Oh yeah, yeah. Screened it for Cruise. And that was the biggest part that he had a problem with. He was really upset yeah. about that scene where he said he's making it up as he goes along. That was low key one of the really that was one of my favorite compositions of the film is like Freddie Quell staggering out to the porch, you know, finishing his flask. Yeah. Maybe he knows that Val is out there. Maybe he doesn't, but it doesn't really does. matter. Yeah. And that confrontation it's it's just a really beautiful scene. I think it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And yeah. like it's that that energy, I feel like so many characters have the energy in this film of of suppressing their true feelings, mm -hmm. suppressing their true nature. Valdad is one of those characters. Like the way that he is told repeatedly, I can see the resemblance. Mm-hmm is so painful yeah. to him. You can see it every time. And it's great casting to cast Plemons as a young Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. To get that when you don't believe anything about your father is like, there's a repetition in that that is, is great. Like it's really well used. Yeah. I'm aware. I'm uh, I understand that feeling. <laughs> I, I do too. I look just like my dad. And every time I see a, a relative that uh, is sort of out of the loop and they just talk of glow about how much I look like my dad, I was like, hey, you, let's just stop talking about that. <laughs> at, uh, at one point in my career, I worked for the same company that my dad did with many of the same people oh, that's right. after he retired. And it was something that I heard fairly often and it cut every time. Yeah. Not a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad we have that in common, dude. At least we can. That's why we're doing this P.T. Anderson series, right? <laughs> right. Right. This is why this is therapy. Um, I do love that scene, too, when uh, when he 
attacks him basically, I feel like it's for that same reason, not like, no, your dad is a genius and a brilliant man. It's no, don't say these things that like, this is the only person who likes me. And this is the only sort of goodness that I have going in my life. And I know it's fake and I don't want to be told it's fake. Right. Like he never believes it. Right. No, I mean, that seems impossible, but you, you never want to be told that. I mean, this is another thing about contemporary society. Like you never want to be told that your belief system is wrong or fucked up or that hurts other people. Yeah. Uh, that's, it's, I feel like it's a part of human nature to defend that as much as you can, because, because you, you just take it personally. Yeah. I feel like that, that Freddie Quell is just, uh, he has found a a sort of weird family, just like um, uh, Marky Mark did, uh, that accepted him. He doesn't Mm -hmm. have to work. He is fed and clothed and kept in booze. And um, I feel like he's passing the time with these people. I never felt like he believed it. But he's participating, though. Like, genuinely participating. That's part of the fun in this film, I think, is is going back and forth between what he may or may not believe. And I think it's part of... It's part of the weird, like, dreamlike quality of this movie, right? Like, are you sure what is real and what isn't in this movie? I feel like I knew the rules of the film up until the point that he took the phone call in the movie theater, which I know you agree with me. You should never take a phone call in a movie theater. <laughs> yeah, but that, that definitely seemed like an impossibility. We, re- we realize that that's a fantasy that he acts upon before he goes out to Europe But like knowing that that scene exists in a film like this, are you sure of any other scene actually existing here? Are you sure that Freddie Quell's entire story isn't made up? Because when he ends up uh, in the sand next to next to sand boobs, yeah, again, I'm I'm not so sure. Really, I'm willing to believe that that the entire thing is a fantasy. It doesn't ruin the film at all for me. But interesting. But I, I think it suggests a squishiness in the reality for Freddie Quell. Yeah, I think I didn't think too much about the phone call other than like, well, there's no way you could know he was there. Um, but yeah, that does sort of throw, throw a seed of doubt into the whole thing. Right. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it would have been Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Kind of finishing up on that one scene, though, it's uh, one of my favorite lines in the movie. It, God, Phil Hoffman is so good in this. But when he comes out, when the cops are there to get him, and he's just so incredulous, yeah. just like L. Ron Hubbard. Like you get, I mean, it's a really good portrayal. You get a sense this is just how L. Ron Hubbard would have been if the cops showed up. And he goes, this is comic opera. <laughs> Such yeah. a great line. Is it illegal in this city to get better? <laughs> It's too bad we'll never get a real L. Ron Hubbard movie. You don't because think? there's a there's a ton of like fascinating shit about that guy. But like, why, don't, why don't you think we yeah, will? I think we could. I think uh, I think Scientology is a very powerful force. I don't think they in, are as much as they once were. I don't think they can think? shut. Yeah, man. I think they've been exposed to a degree net where they can't shut shit down like they used to. Look, man, I live in L.A. I don't want to be chained to a radiator in in some in some boat somewhere, man. You're not going to hear me uh, besmirch Scientology on this show. Uh, another one of my favorite lines, and it's one of the two times that Philip Seymour Hoffman lets that rage come out, is uh, when he's being questioned by the guy. And he goes, if you already know the answers to your question, then why do you ask, pig fuck? <laughs> How how many times did you rewind that scene? Today, to get... three times. <laughs> it's so rewatchable. It really and is. And 
as great of a director as Paul Thomas Anderson is, I don't know that you evoke that out of Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think that's within him to do. Yeah. And I could get a, I could get a hundred runs at that line reading and, and never do it the way that Philip Seymour Hoffman does. There's like half of it is, is staccato and the other half uh-huh. isn't. <laughs> it's so good. And it's such a buildup of like interruption, right? Yeah. You're working on a thing and some fucking guy is, is asking me. a question. Excuse me. This isn't the Q&A portion <laughs> of the thing, guy. Yeah, he he successfully ignores him enough and the guy keeps saying, excuse yeah. me. Um, oh man, it's so good. And, and you know, it's, it's the built up uh, taut, coiled spring of having to always be defending yeah. yourself. But I think where, why it works so well is they didn't show any of that in this movie hardly. They show yeah. that there's that scene. There's and that's kind of it. I mean, there's the two times he blows up actually very innocently. Laura Dern's character kind of calls him on his bullshit and he gets caught kind of red-handed delivering bullshit and his his excuse isn't very good and he knows it, so he just blows up at her. You know who I love in both of those scenes? I love Laura Dern and I love Amy Adams because there's, we cut away to Amy Adams and that first disruption. Yeah. And you can see uh, her coiled rage is never released. You can just see it like vibrating there. Yeah, yeah. And you can, to a certain extent, see the same thing in Laura Dern. Like, Like she's put off and incredulous and... She never gets her release either, and I think she doesn't. And I think they are they they do such work in this movie. Yeah, in in like you need to cut away, right? Like technically, you can't just stay on Dodd for his spring and explosion. You need reactions, and and the reactions in this film are are so useful and good. Yeah. Uh, I'd be interested to know what's on the cutting room floor of this movie. If there's a three hour version. Yeah. I could see some, some, uh, I could see some scenes being in this that weren't, that could have benefited it, but that's not to knock it. Like, I think it's a great film. Maybe there's a second hand job. (laughs) We can always hope. Um, and, and the interesting thing too, about when he blows up at Laura Dern is sort of that third act, the cracks are forming, feeling yeah a little bit you know but he doesn't hammer at home it's not like i think a a, a less or maybe more obvious filmmaker might have really had a bunch of scenes where people are on to him and there's a news report and there's the media but like they're really in a bubble with the cause there's not a lot of outsiders ever that's a really great observation we never get outside of this ecosystem Mm mm-hmm and even like the outsiders that we get are still inside it. Right. Like that guy's at the meeting. Uh, the yeah. guy who questions him is there. Yeah. John Moore like got an invitation. Right. He's allowed to go to the party. Is that the same party that ends up being naked later, according <laughs> to Freddie Quell? Yeah. The singing scene. Um, yeah. Really interesting. Like that was, uh, felt very Kubrickian somehow. Great call. And not just Great be- call. And not just because of Eyes Wide Shut, just something about it, like this yeah. alternate reality of this guy imagining every every woman in there being naked and with those giant merkins. 
imagine being the uh, the casting director that's like, all right, seventy four year old actor, yeah. like <laughs> you've done you've done the lines perfectly. We really love your performance. How comfortable are you with nudity? And the actor's like. I mean, I read the scene. There's no suggestion <laughs> of nudity whatsoever. What are we talking about here? Yeah. Have you seen a Kubrick movie? Right. <laughs> Here's a, your giant Gabe Kaplan Merkin. God. Hey, here's a question. All I right. don't want. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Do it. You're cast in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Okay. But the condition is, you got to hang dong. <laughs> Do you do it? Oh, like I'm the actor? Yeah. You're in the party scene, Chuck. Adam, there is not an amount of money in the world where I would hang dong for other people wow. to see. Wow. I grew up Southern Baptist, dude. I am I am ashamed of nudity. <laughs> I am also. Uh, my my wife makes fun of me for being a never nude. I don't even like to undress in front of her. No, there's no way. Would you? I think it says a lot about my appreciation for Paul Thomas Anderson that, <laughs> that I would think <laughs> I really would. No, Just no imagine way. that cemented in time forever, like the dong of the present. That's all I can is imagine. On that, <laughs> is on that Blu-ray evermore. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, the only way I would do that is if I had a, a, a complete face covering mask. <laughs> Give me the, uh, Mark Wahlberg dong. Give me the Boogie Nights dong. Sure, Break yeah. that thing out of the safe. Yeah, I'd do that. <laughs> um, let's talk about the jail scene. Uh, you know, the cops come, Freddie gets in a fight on the front porch with the cops. Another great fight in the movie, uh, kind of brutal. And they end up in adjoining cells, Lancaster Dot is already in there, and they dump Freddie in there next to him, handcuffed. And because he's handcuffed, he can't punch the wall like he wants to. So he reacts like an animal again and just is banging his shoulders against the cot and, like, he breaks the fucking toilet with his boot. I mean, it's it's really, really a great, great scene. The, like, filmmaker in me saw him break that toilet and go, like, oh, fuck. Like... <laughs> Do we have to shoot the second take and like a couple of cells over? Are we just moving down? Was that the an accident? Line? Do you think? I don't think that it was an accident, but I I think it's one of those moments where you watch it as a as a director and go like, this is why you cast Joaquin Phoenix. Oh no! See like, that it's, th that was my question. Like it's okay that he destroyed your set. That was take. that was my question watching it, and my question for you. Your take is that he just did that, and my I was wondering, was it a rigged toilet that they reset every time? It certainly feels like it just happened in the moment, but the magic. Hey, of, when we start a band, can we call it rigged toilet? <laughs> the magic of movie making, though, you know how it goes, yeah. dude. Like, would you be disappointed to learn that, like, oh, no, 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 we had a toilet that broke away, and we reset it every time because it looks so great. Would that disappoint you? There's something so dangerous about this entire scene that, like, I want to <laughs> believe that this was the one cell that they could use yeah. side by side, it seemed, and these were the stakes. Yeah, it because, seemed legit. Like, it's a film about stakes in a lot of ways. 
And this is a scene that's emblematic of that. Like the split screenness of it. Yeah. The the stillness of one side of the diptych and uh-huh. and the tornado <laughs> happening on the other. Yeah. Is so amazing. It, I think it's one of the great scenes in all of movies. Yeah, and Dodd's dialogue is so good in that scene. Like I, I just I, I can't imagine how much fun it was to sit down and write some of his dialogue as a screenwriter. I love the idea of a spite piss. Like I'm yeah. gonna piss at the end of this scene <laughs> in my right. in my still put together toilet that you don't have. Yeah. I forgot about that. That was the perfect way to put the cherry on that scene. It's so, uh-huh. <laughs> it's so passive aggressive. Um, and you know, that sort of spins us into our third act, which is the, the desert location. Uh, they go to Phoenix for the, the unveiling of book two and they, and it, and it's such a, it's so funny to me that Paul Thomas Anderson with the straight face could say like, no, this isn't really based on Scientology. When he's smoking cools and he has this this box buried in the middle of the desert containing his life's right. work in it. Like that is so right. L. Ron Hubbard. It's straight out of South Park, for sure. And then the book sucks. What was it called? The uh The 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 Cutlass? Yeah, the it, something uh, two sides of the saber or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. But uh, uh and when they're printing it you see the sort of subtitle a book for a book for Homo sapiens or something like that. <laughs> a gift. Yeah, a gift. <laughs> it's always a gift, isn't it? It's so great, though, man. They dig up this box, and that that whole desert sequence is so weird because yeah. it's just the notion of uh, this game called Pick a Spot. It's so dumb, but it works. Have you ever ridden a motorcycle? So when I was a kid, I had a friend with a dirt bike and I would ride that a little bit. And then later on, my dad had a motorcycle for one summer when I was like 10. And I I rode on the back of that a couple of times, but he wrecked it with me on it when we were going camping once. It wasn't, it was kind of the deal where we were pulling into a a camping, uh, like a dirt road from the main road, like to go camping. And there was all yeah. this fresh gravel. And uh, so it was slow. But I remember, it's so funny, I remember seeing that gravel and being like, we're going to go down. And he and he pulled in. Like and, in slow motion. And started to slide. And I bailed because I kind of saw it coming. So I didn't get hurt, but he burned his leg on the muffler. And that was kind of it. I mean, it was a very low speed thing. But other than that, I've wow. never driven a motorcycle. Have you? No, I, the closest I've gotten is a, is a quad. Okay. Like I've ridden, I've ridden sand dunes and that, that quads. That is not close, my friend. <laughs> I know it's not, it's not, but, but it's, it's close in terms of temperature and sound. It's hot and loud. Yeah. And you got handlebars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not the same, but boy, the idea of going out into the desert or to a salt flat or something and doing this. Very interesting to me. I would do it if you would. It looks exhilarating. <laughs> I do it if you would. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman looked like he was having a, the time of his life. Yeah, he was hooting and hollering. I, I was. I sort of think I remember seeing this for the first time, thinking that this was he was trying to get Freddie to die by his own mm. hand for some reason, and I even thought that a little bit today, like he brought yeah. him out there to sort of 
stage an accident that that really happened. There is even a suggestion of that when we when we're in very close on Lancaster Dodd's face, and he, I don't know, he says something ambiguous about mm-hmm. what he's seeing, as if he's witnessed the death of Freddie Quell. That that you're expecting it. It's setting you up for that. A it did bit. not personally set me up for him just riding away forever. <laughs> yeah, he just kept going. That great shot yeah. of them walking with a car behind him at the end was fantastic. Like he, he wouldn't even get in the, car. the motorcycle. <laughs> uh, that's another one of my favorite lines. Is I don't know if you caught it. I had to subtitle it, but when he tells Freddie to pick a spot. And he said, tell me what it is. And he goes, you know, that point over there, that point, that mountain. He goes, uh, he goes, that head. And he went, it's an alligator's head. <laughs> it's such a cool line. Like, do you write that or does Phil Hoffman make that up on the in the moment? Because it looked like an alligator. I mean, Lancaster Dodd is a character who's, who sees things that in a different way. Like, he's, I feel like he's always going to describe things in that way. In yeah. a way that impresses the people around him. Yeah. And the same, it also reminds me of the way that he would, and this was so L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology, that sequence where the book is coming out and they're doing sort of the promo photography and that great yeah. sequence when he's he's got the cowboy outfit and he's the rancher and then he's at the desk with that giant quill and ink, uh, ink pen and <laughs> it's just so like L. Ron Hubbard in the 50s. So serious. I I think that's the scene that stuck out to me in the movie trailer was, I feel like there was a montage of those portraits being taken of Philip Seymour Hoffman and that like, that Sears portrait studio, hands clasped. Yeah. Perfectly lit quality. I mean, and, and going back to the very beginning of the film, like the, nice the quality of family portraiture yeah. in a department store of that time is so perfect and beautiful looking. Well, dude, the colors. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was one of the things from my list from earlier that I didn't mention. The the color and the and the composition of those shots early on. Yeah. That fifties yeah. technicolor is just it's like magic looking. It really is. I I mean you and I have production experience. Like I don't, I want where, how do you even do that? How do you like intentionally make it look so perfect? It's, it's one of the magic tricks of this film. It's great. Yeah. And it's one of the things that like, that establishes Freddie Quell's otherness. Like he's seeing families get together to take these pictures that yeah. he gets to observe. Mm-hmm. Over and over again, he's experiencing this as an outside observer, just taking pictures. He never gets to be in the photo. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, sort of like the P.T. Anderson theme that we keep talking about with these weird families. He doesn't have that. Yeah, He is the Marky Mark character. Um, He's this disgusting sort of depraved guy who had this one maybe shot at, at love, but you also sort of don't even get the feeling that Doris was, I think only in his mind was she, were they really going to be a thing that just didn't quite work out? I'm so glad that in the uh, 90th minute, we're finally bringing up Doris (laughs) 
who may be the reason for the whole thing. Yeah, right. Doris, Doris of a strong Norwegian family. Yeah. You know, Doris's family going to take her back to the homeland to meet the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are concepts that are totally alien to a Freddie Quell. Yeah, he tells her not to go. Yeah, before he does. I know, and then it's like, I'm out of here. You should go to Norway or whatever. <laughs> I love the actor who plays Doris's mom Yeah, in that scene. I love so much about this scene because it is a, it's an example of Freddie turning the corner, like everything that Lancaster Dodd has impregnated in him about suppressing his animalism is here because this is the test, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like she's, she is almost uniquely suited to pressing every bruise that he's got. Yep. And he's just absorbing the pain over and over again with every line. And she's so like, uh, she's so like Norsk's, Norsk chill yeah. in a way that if you know people who are like, is just perfect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a tense scene. You keep, you, I mean, you're waiting for him yeah. to hurt her or just to explode. And the it, last time he was at this house, he like tore out the window. Yeah. yeah but it, it sort of gives you the idea that, I mean, in that act three, he's a little bit of a success story. But yeah. in the way that P.T. Anderson would do it, which is again, not to be obvious and show him like, you know, with some great job and he's really succeeding in life, but it hints at his, that he's gotten a little better because of the cause. I want to float something at you right now. This is, that's going to feel a little film papery. Oh, here we go. <laughs> which is like, you remember the Jason Robards monologue at the end of Magnolia about yeah. like, uh, the most the, corrosive aspect to a person's life is like the regret. The goddamn regret. Exactly. What do you think this is? Like, this is the same thing. This is like, this is the idea of the regret of doing a thing and failing is not nearly as bad as the not doing of a thing at all. And this is the confrontation that Freddie Quell has with that idea. Like, he had a chance to make a thing with Doris and and he, he punched out. He hit the eject button before he had a chance to truly realize it. Well, dude, and go I've, out on that limb. I think you're right on the money because earlier in the processing scene, two of the very pointed questions he asked are, do you regret your life's actions or whatever? Do you have your life regrets? And then, um, what was the other one? It wasn't life regrets. Oh, well, he sort of asked him about uh, when he has sex with his aunt, he asked them, mm -hmm. he asked him if he regrets doing that. And like yeah. why he did that. And I think both of those sort of tie in. It feels like the superficial question about Paul Thomas Anderson films might be, are they about family? And the like, the varsity team question that, that you and I play for <laughs> is, are his films about regret? Yeah. And I believe they are. Yeah, I think you're right. I think all of his films, you can sort of tie that thread through, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why they hit so hard. Yeah. Because this, again, this is a movie that doesn't have characters that you really relate to or root for in a traditional sense, but it still hits hard. 
and it's usually those other things that do hit hard is you relating or feeling for these people. So he's pulling, like he's got a toolbox here that you don't see a lot. Like everyone knows what it's like to exist in a family, you know, whether or not that, that relationship is positive or negative, but like, I feel like a person's relationship with regret is so much more relatable person to person. Like you and I, you and I can share in what our regrets are in a way that like makes that, uh, that feeling, uh, a transaction. And there's like a currency to that, that, that feels even the, the, uh, and, and like, while our families might be different, I feel like our regrets might be at a, at a far more acute level yeah. of, of feeling. Yeah. And that might be like, like if you're really trying to make a film or a series of films that makes you feel a thing, like what is, what is like the, what's the deepest part of being a human being that, that levels the playing field? What's the thing that, that, that I can relate to you on, on a level, even though we've had totally separate lives, it's how our regrets make us feel. Yeah. I feel like those are very similar feelings, person to person, how that feels deeply. Yeah. It's, it's sort of the great equalizer. Like it doesn't matter what the regret is. It's that same underlying feeling. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. That might be the great leitmotif of Paul Thomas Anderson films. Yeah. We should get him on here and ask him. I'd love to. <laughs> uh, let's let's do the interview at the Boogie Nights house that you and I buy. <laughs> done. <laughs> as a business expense. So let's wrap it up here with that scene uh, when he finally goes back to England and he, you know, he, he meets them in this uh, cavernous office. I mean, you can't even call it an office. He set up his desk in this, you know, sort of palatial room and, um, Amy Adams. How great is the lighting of this scene, right? Oh, it's so good, man. It's like, it's shriekingly backlit. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, and yet, like, everything's bounced back up in his face. It's... Yeah. We don't, I feel like we, as in people who talk about movies, do not call attention to, like, the work of those who light scenes Yeah. in a way that we should, because uh, this scene in particular is incredibly lit. Yeah, it's a lot of work to light a room that big with that much natural light. Um, but Amy Adams isn't having it, you know. She just sort of dismisses him as as still on the drink and you can't handle this life straight. And she leaves. And you, f- you feel like that had to happen in the scene because there's almost that moment, or there kind of is that, that moment where they both look at each other like, well, I'm glad she's gone. And it's, and it's us, just us. Whatever did you us notice is. her? Did you notice her eyes were black in that scene? No, were they? No, I'm just teasing. Oh, <laughs> but you were ready to believe that, right? I was because after that scene where she said to change her eye color or whatever, there's kind of a supernatural quality to Amy Adams in this movie. Yeah, I think, and this is a scene that demonstrates it. Yeah, like, like, like. Lancaster Dodd is in fear of his wife, or at least the sort of respect of a wife that allows for that kind of fear. Mm -hmm. And when she leaves the room, you're totally right, Chuck. Like, his shoulders slump. He's like, God, 
can finally get into these four packs of cools right. with my buddy. <laughs> yeah, you brought him the cools. Such a solid move. Yeah. But, the, you know, that scene, though, is very... Uh, it did not go the way that you would expect it to go in a, in a movie. You know, that's usually a big reconciliation or something. And, it, and it's... Uh, he gets this great story about where they where he feels like they met before this just batshit about them being on the pigeon force or whatever with the Prussians bearing down on them. Is, and like, it's so great. How do you write that shit? Is this a war movie, Chuck? Like <laughs> given the, the torpedo beginning well, and the, yeah. and the balloon ending. It is I, bookended. <laughs> it's so great. Like, how do you write that you, out? It's crazy to think of like, Paul Thomas Anderson thinking of that, like where would they have met? Because he could have done you anything. Feel, you feel like Lancaster Dodd doesn't even believe it when he's saying it, right? Sort of. <laughs> I got that feeling. Did you? I don't know, did. man. I, I couldn't tell. Like the Elron Hubbards of the world. That's why I'm so fascinated by it all. I, I can never suss out if they eventually bought into their own shit or if they were just charlatans to the bone. This is a magic of working with the greatest actors, though. Yeah. Like, if it isn't the truth, then is Paul Thomas Anderson going, can you give me a 9.5 on the story? Yeah. Just roll a little bit off of it. Because I feel like there's a little bit rolled off of this story. Oh, you think? At the end. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think his heart's in it the way that it's in everything else. And it may be just a... Like the passage of time has suggested an amount of fatigue in the sort of leadership style storytelling that that leads us to this point in this character's story. But I don't know. I, maybe neither of them believe it. Maybe maybe Lancaster Dodd does utterly the way he believes everything else about himself. But well, that's the scene I'm going to watch again after we're done. Yeah. Um, I'm going to cue that one up because. Boy, I, I, I just, every, you know, I think I've talked about this before. I, I always try to picture the writer at a computer or at a laptop actually right. like writing this stuff. And that, that, that bit of dialogue about them being in the war, sending these balloons up because he could have done anything. They could have met anywhere. He could have said they were cavemen together in the, the Paleolithic era or whatever, like he could have gone in any direction throughout history and they could have done, they could have been chimney sweeps in London. They could have, yeah, whatever. They could have been Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. And he, it was important that they did something <laughs> important. Yeah. I think and it so. was important that there was a statistical specificity to it. I feel like this totally. is a thing that, that a lot of, um, magicians use mm -hmm. like, like, this has got to be true because it's so specific, right? Yeah. Only two balloons were Only lost. <laughs> That's a detail that that a practiced yeah. cult leader would use, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, man. And it's very, it's very clear that he's being specific about that. We only lost yeah. two balloons through the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, Joaquin's probably, Freddie's probably impressed by that. I mean, the tears you see from him you could understand are like this is this is goodbye between them yeah but it's also maybe finally a recognition of the lie of the whole thing oh like, wow yeah 
how could you how could you not convince Freddie Quell of anything? Yeah. He's so suge- he's so suggestible. He's so drunk and dumb. Yeah. But this is the maybe maybe the point that's that's too far. And maybe the tears are from that as well. Yeah, you wonder if he uh if he went in there almost hoping that the story would be I think you you know you took my uh, friend's picture at the mall one day mm-hmm. and uh, and I was there shopping and uh like something believable and like when he gets this fantastical story he's just like it's it's fully seals the deal that yeah, yeah. this guy is so full of shit yeah what a bummer yeah there is a I feel like you could make the case that the film could end there. Yeah, but you get that last scene. You do. You get you get the lady at the bar. Freddie Quell's still in Europe. He uh, he makes eyes with the lady across the bar. He gets her to buy him a drink, which Chuck, I don't know about you. I don't know. I don't know if that's ever happened to me. Yeah, I don't think that's ever happened to me either. <laughs> I'm buying my own drinks, brother. Yeah, me too. Uh and uh, and they end up going back to wherever. Here's the thing: they go back to where she's staying, right? Yeah, I think so. There's no chance that Freddie's got a place to stay, and he kind of gives her the business. Yeah, the questions business. Yeah, and he is delighted by her answers. Yeah, like you get the weird feeling this is the beginning of something for them. Right. She's great. I like her a lot. She's good, and he and he's he's still sort of the animal when yeah. he goes. Uh, uh, it fell out. Put it back in. <laughs> We've all had it fall out, Chuck. We've all asked for it to be put back in. Oh boy, good stuff, dude. This is a very very familiar moment. <laughs> <laughs> what a movie, man! I mean so great yeah like i think what i respect most about pt anderson at this point in this phase in his career when he made this and there will be blood was that he wasn't like i said he forgot about the audience he wasn't even out to entertain necessarily i think i don't know what was going through his head but i love these movies they're challenging as hell i think i like there will be blood more yeah it's not like a band leader who like turns his back to the audience who doesn't want them to see the mm-hmm. music being played. Like it's not that inscrutable, but it's very much a feeling of this is the story I'm trying to tell. Try to keep up. Yeah. Try to project your own life onto it in a way that's satisfying. It really, God, it's, I, I might agree with you that uh, that the film that came before might be the favorite of the two, mm-hmm. but it's no less satisfying to watch the master. It's yeah, there's so much here. It's really great. Just to watch the acting is like it's just a masterclass, man. It's ridiculous. It really is, and that's what makes it great and sad. Yeah, in a way that like. So many PTA films are great and sad. Yeah. Absolutely. Good stuff, dude. I love these yeah. talks. Yeah. I think Good we therapy, did it. Good therapy, man. <laughs>
Good job by you. We get to talk about our dads. It's always uh, with P.T. Anderson. We always we always get to dig in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure do. We'll, All right. Uh, we'll save some of that for the after show. Well, I think what what's next is uh, Inherent Vice, right? Which, uh, as you know, is a, somehow a movie I did not see. Whoa, what? I didn't see it, man. It got such Here's... shit that yeah. it got by me. And I was like, I don't want to see it if it's no good. And then just as a film student and P.T. Anderson fan, I like just dropped the ball. There's no excuse. I mean, if you're working with Joaquin Phoenix, you want to work with him again, right? Like so he's I, in that, I right? Can definitely, I can definitely understand that. Yeah. But also, if you're Paul Thomas Anderson, let's just say that you have a number of films to do in your career. Okay. I mean, it's to adapt something else, I think, is an interesting exercise. But as a consumer of film and a consumer of his work specifically, like, I would not make that trade. Like, mm-hmm. I would always choose an original work written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson than an adaptation. Yeah, for sure. Of a work, which is what this next one is. But I can totally understand a, a creative person's instinct to try. get uncomfortable and, and yeah. try something different. So I I respect it and I love it, but I hope it's not at the expense of a project that he makes himself because he's so he's so great. Oh, I can't wait to see it. Uh and that'll be interesting too because it'll be super fresh for me and uh Yeah. That'll be a different sort of episode for us. We need more therapy, <laughs> clearly. More movie therapy specifically. All right, brother. Well, that was a good one. I hope uh, the listeners are still enjoying the P.T. Anderson series. We want to get it to him one day. I think that'll happen. I think yeah. he, needs to, he needs to hear these shows. <laughs> I'd love that very much. Let's do the wrap-up show with him at the Boogie Nights house. Absolutely. All right. I thanks. think you've got that kind of pull. <laughs> Shit. Good way to end. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, man. It's great to do this again. I missed you a lot. I miss you, too. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. 
have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.